Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story. The struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. A Gentle Thief, written and performed by Amanda Dixon. Episode 14. In episode 13, it is Christmas night, 1983, and Maddie finally answers the phone that's been ringing all day. She speaks first with her mother and then with her father. They've both been calling for hours. As she listens to them talk, she takes her gun out of her bedside table. That's where she keeps it. Later, Khan stops by to apologize for not showing up on Christmas Eve, and he sees her gun on the bed. He freaks out. She points it at him and finds her voice to finally tell him to get out of her house. And now... Episode 14 of A Gentle Thief. Sophie often came into the office wondering what assignment she would be diverted to first. She would plan to begin on this or that case, only to find an email or voicemail from one of the partners who was having a crisis and needed to be bumped to the head of the line. This morning, she hoped for no emergencies because she was going to finally work on the packets for the three medical examiners in the Madeline Johnson case, the three that Dr. Verdad had said he respected and could be swayed by, Dr. Horowitz in Phoenix, Dr. Chambliss in Atlanta, and Dr. Green in Seattle. Sophie Googled all three MEs, read their CVs, perused speeches they had given, and noted awards they'd received. She saw pictures of them taken at crime scenes and standing next to governors. Dr. Green had made some controversial rulings involving the death of a child of a prominent citizen. He seemed comfortable in his confidence. Dr. Chambliss came off as somewhat of a maverick, too, regularly showing up and insisting on doing the exams himself, even firing the son of a lawmaker who he called a slacker. It was unclear whether he was referring to the legislator or the son. Sophie thought her approach with both of these doctors should be head-on, respect your opinion, only looking for the truth. But Dr. Horowitz was different. He was an older man with a kind face and 45 years of experience. He had been in the ME's office since long before Sophie was born. He had grandchildren, 23 in total, including three adopted from China, who he talked about with awe and affection. One had committed suicide three years before. Sophie read the article in the Phoenix paper with shock. This man had been in her client's shoes. 
He knew the consuming sorrow of a child's death by her own hand. It was his granddaughter, the daughter of his middle daughter, who had killed herself while she was in high school. The article talked about the manner of death, overdose. It made apologies for naming the victim, something the paper said it had a policy never to do in the case of a minor, but that this case was an exception because the family had openly talked about their loss. It was their hope that in doing so, they might be of help to some other family who was enduring a similar trial. The paper quoted Dr. Horowitz, "'It doesn't seem possible to us that she's gone.' She had more life and a strand of hair than many people experience in a lifetime. She was too beautiful, too passionate, too talented for this world. We blame no one, most especially our precious girl, for this tragedy. We blame ourselves, of course, although we shouldn't. We argue with God and fate, and we all miss her desperately and wish she were here, so we could try to talk her out of her decision, one that we will never understand." He was a poet. He was a father and grandfather and a poet and the state of Arizona's top forensic scientist. Sophie would approach him with a sensitivity to all these roles. She had just begun to compose her first of the three letters when the phone rang. The caller ID said, Sharla Keller. Sharla! Sophie answered the phone with a smile before it could ring through to her secretary. Hey, baby! Her friend teased her. She had met Sharla her second week in college. That was when Sharla finally decided to show up to class. Sophie couldn't imagine the nonchalance of missing the first week of your freshman year of college and feeling so completely unthreatened by the transgression. But that was Sharla. Sharla and Sophie were unlikely friends, so outwardly different, their spirits and clothes and study habits complete opposites. And yet, when they were paired in Music Appreciation 105, a general education elective they had both thought sounded easy but wasn't, they got to know each other and quickly became devoted to the friendship. They both knew everything about each other, things Sophie had never told her husband and things Sharla had never told any of her many boyfriends. They could both have done serious damage to the other if either had decided to spill the beans. They didn't talk often these days, saw each other even less, but whenever they got back together, it was as if no time had passed. How are you doing? Sharla asked. I'm up to hearing it. Sophie exhaled loudly. Well, I know that, just the way you like it. What's going on? I'm working on this case that has me consumed. Oh, do tell. Well, the Cliff Notes version is that a girl was found dead on New Year's Day 20 years ago with a gun in her hands. Was there a note? Charlotte never let Sophie get away with the Cliff Notes version. No, no note. And the powder test on her hands came back negative, even though there are these brown marks on her hands. Plus, the family is convinced that her boyfriend killed her, or someone killed her, but that she didn't kill herself. Why? Why what? Why are they convinced she didn't kill herself? Sophie cocked her head slightly. I don't know, she answered thoughtfully. Do you know, I don't think I've ever asked that question. I'm just wondering, is it like that she's just one of those people who would never commit suicide, or did something happen right before, or what? I don't know the answer to that. I guess I've been assuming that they just didn't think their daughter was capable of killing herself, but I do know that she had broken up with her boyfriend a few days before, 
Actually, she had married really young, gotten divorced a few months before, and then had this brief, tumultuous relationship with this guy that ended a couple of days before she died. Ooh, sounds like a movie. Yeah, it does. She was so beautiful and young. What about the boyfriend? What about him? Was he beautiful? I don't know, Sophie admitted again. I've never seen a picture of him. I saw the ex-husband. He was like 20 years older than she was, but I've never seen the boyfriend. You've got to see him, Soph. What was his name? Khan. Sounds like a killer, she teased. You know what you've got to do? You've got to go see Mildred. Who's Mildred? I've told you about Mildred. Charlotte sounded playfully annoyed. She's my psychic. She is so fabulous. Right, right, I remember. She's the older woman who won't take new clients unless you're referred by a friend. And only if she feels like she can help you. She is amazing. I only go once a year now. I'd go more often, but that's all she'll see me. Charla laughed. I'm sure I could get you in. Go and ask her about this case. About, what was her name again? Madeline. Ask her about Madeline and this con dude and see what she says. She might even point you in the right direction, tell you something you haven't thought of before. Kind of like you just did, Sophie admitted. Exactly. Only ten times better. You are going to love her. I don't know. A psychic? Do I have to take a lock of her hair or something? Ooh, do you have one? Charlotte asked, hopefully. No, that was a joke. Ew. Here's her number. Charlotte read the number and then added... You know, you might even ask her about your situation while you're there. My situation? What does that mean? I don't need a psychic. What, are you kidding me now? Let's start with that perfect marriage of yours that can't possibly be as perfect as it looks. How about the older man thing with what's-his-name-before-Sean, not to mention Sean? How about the gaining and losing 50 pounds every other year? You've got some stuff to work with, sister. My marriage is so as perfect as it looks. Okay, love you, gotta go. And she was gone, just like that. Charlotte blew in, changed everything, and blew out. She was a beautiful tornado. Okay, where was I? Sophie asked out loud after she hung up the phone. She felt slightly unnerved by what Charlotte had asked her. Why did Madeline's family feel so strongly that it couldn't have been suicide? Sophie didn't remember the answer to that question in any of the papers she had studied in the file. She had assumed the answer, but she didn't really know it. She supposed it was because Madeline wasn't capable of it, that her father knew his daughter so well that he simply knew in his soul that she didn't do it, couldn't have done it. But the more Sophie thought about it, the more she wondered why she hadn't seen that question asked and answered anywhere before. She made a note to ask Ike Johnson the next time he called, which was likely going to be today, which brought her back to the present moment. Right, she said out loud to offer herself encouragement. She was preparing the packets of material and letters for the three medical examiners. She began with composing a letter to Dr. Green, then copying it almost verbatim for Dr. Chambliss. She explained straight out to them that Dr. Verdad in Salt Lake City had said that he, Dr. Green, then Dr. Chambliss, was one of the most respected in the field, and that if Dr. Green saw anything in this file that made him question the manner of death determination, Dr. Verdad would reconsider his office's judgment. Sophie asked the doctors to review the files, to contact her with any questions, and to render their professional opinions in writing as soon as they were able. 
She tried not to play her hand too heavily, but she did highlight the evidence that supported her client's position, that the bullet fragments were lost and no determination of where the bullet came from could ever be made, that the crime scene photo shows how unnatural the body looked to the coroner on the scene, that the powder test came back negative, that the crime scene was not preserved, that suspects, including a boyfriend recently jilted, were never interviewed sufficiently. And then the coup de grace. She offered to pay them whatever expert fee they charged, thanking them profusely in advance for their time. Then she turned to the more challenging letter to Dr. Horowitz. Sophie didn't quite know how to begin. She decided to speak from the heart, something she knew Rick would not approve of, but she tried it out anyway, just to see how it felt to write the words, not sure if she would ever send them. Dear Dr. Horowitz, she wrote, I am writing to you on behalf of a grieving father, Ike Johnson. Mr. Johnson is my client. He is a man who is convinced that his young daughter did not commit suicide, despite the determination of the Utah medical examiner. He is convinced that his little girl was killed by an unstable ex-boyfriend, a man who was never investigated or charged with the crime. Mr. Johnson's belief is so strong, so unwavering, that he has spent untold thousands of dollars hiring law firms around the country to help him accomplish a single task, to have the medical examiner in Utah, Dr. Juan Verdad, change the death certificate to read homicide rather than suicide. Which brings me to why I'm imposing on you. After trying every other means of persuasion and failing, I asked Dr. Verdad if there was anything I might do that would convince him to change the determination. He said finally that if you, Dr. Horowitz, believed he had missed something in the case, he might look at it again. I am writing to implore you to take some of your precious time to review the documents in this file. These are the autopsy results, private investigators' notes, and my summaries of same where that makes sense. They are the documents and test results I thought you might need to make a judgment. I, of course, will pay you whatever you charge for this work, which only you can perform. I am grateful in advance for any consideration you would give this case, my client, and me. I am aware of the painful questions I pose, and I am aware that you may understand them better than anyone else I have encountered in the months I've been working on this case. Forgive me for imposing on you. I have nowhere else to turn. Sincerely yours, Sophie Brownlee, Attorney at Law. Rick was out of the office that afternoon. Sophie cc'd him on the letters, but sent them out without his approval. She knew she'd take heat for the wording of Dr. Horowitz's letter, maybe for other parts of the correspondence, too, but she just couldn't risk his lawyering all over everything with that cool distance letters from law firms dripped with. This case needed more than dispassionate competence. Rosie offered to take the packets to FedEx for Sophie on her way home. No, thanks. I think I'll walk them over myself. Rosie smiled, then added, You did good, kid. Sophie paused, then said slowly, Thank you. Hello. Sophie said to the voicemail of the psychic Mildred when she called later that evening. I'm a friend of Charlotte Keller's. I was wondering if you might have a few minutes for me. I'm a lawyer, and I'm working on a case that is... Well, it's... Hello, a woman interrupted the recording. 
She must have one of those old-fashioned answering machines. Yes, I'm here. Hello. Oh, hello, Sophie said, slightly startled. My name is Sophie Brownlee. Charlotte Keller recommended I call you. Oh, I love Charlotte. How lucky for you to have her as a friend. The woman's voice sounded so warm. Yes, I am. I'm just calling to see if you would consider... Well, of course I would. When would you like to come? As soon as possible, I guess. I'm working on a case, and I've kind of run into a brick wall. I was hoping you might be able to help. I'm not at all sure, dear, but I suspect we'll find out. Why don't you come by tomorrow at five? Sophie did not check her schedule. She just said, Great. Thank you so much. Of course. Do you know where I am? No, I guess I don't. Mildred gave her the address. Hello, Sophie, Mildred said as if she had known her for years. Mildred was a woman with gray hair that was nearly white, pulled back in a loose bun held with a mother-of-pearl clip. She looked seventy, with clarity and light in her eyes, which were a piercing green color. She wore a lovely white blouse, crisp in its appearance, with tailored tan-colored slacks. Mildred was tall, nearly as tall as Sophie, in her flat ballet slipper shoes. Please come in, she said as she held the door open. Thank you, Sophie smiled, feeling suddenly less anxious than she had on the way over. We're just back here. Mildred led Sophie through the living room and dining room to an office toward the back of the house. The office was lovely, decorated in a light teak wood with soft chenille throws and other touches sprinkled around. It didn't feel cluttered, though. There weren't ten cats lounging everywhere, like Sophie had pictured. There was a clean desk that had only a Tiffany desk lamp on it and a comfortable cloth-covered chair on either side. Please, sit down. Mildred took her spot behind the desk, and Sophie sat opposite. Mildred then took a linen cloth out from underneath the desk and laid it on top. She smoothed it lovingly with her hands, first this way and then that. Then she lifted a small case up from a drawer and set it on top of the cloth. The case was ornate, like a very small jewelry box, about the size of a half a club sandwich. All right, I want you to hold the case in your hands, dear. Let your energy pass into it. Think about what you have come here today to learn, and in your own time, turn the case upside down and release the contents onto the cloth. Mildred paused, just slightly, and looked at Sophie with complete patience. Whenever you're ready, she added. Sophie hesitated for a moment, then reached out with both hands to pick up the case. She pictured Madeline Johnson, the way she had looked standing next to her father in the picture from her childhood. Then she saw her as she was found dead on that New Year's Day. She heard Ike Johnson's agonized voice on the phone, needing words to be changed on a piece of paper in Utah, even though that would never bring his daughter back. Her mind flashed to Rick, to his swagger, to her desire to prove herself to him. She realized that she wanted his approval, desperately, wanted him to feel pride in her. Her brow furrowed as she brought herself back from that thought to Madeline. What could she do to help this girl so many years ago taken from the earth? How could she help her now? How could she help her father? Her only thought as she turned the case upside down was, help me to help her. She looked up at the most delicate jumble of figures that had fallen onto the cloth. There was a miniature suitcase and lamp, 
a tiny mirror, a small globe, several miniature people, a charm like you'd find on a little girl's bracelet. Sophie's eyes danced from one figure to another as Mildred took a deep breath and brought her hands up on top of the table. All right, I see, she said knowingly, touching the figures in the places they had fallen, her eyes completely focused on her work. Yes, all right, she continued talking to herself. Then she looked up at Sophie. What do you want to know?' 